2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We're going to do a little bit of uh, flipping around. Let me tell you now so I don't forget if you want to mark it or at least be prepared for it. And actually, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6, but verse 5 in particular is what I'm highlighting today in the, in the latter part. We, look, we will read verses 10, uh, excuse me, 4 to 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 6, focusing on verse 5 in the latter part. But I'm also going to take you with me back to Genesis chapter 3, and then ahead to Matthew chapter 4. And then we'll come back to this text. So that'll be our walk through the scriptures today. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6, focusing on verse 5. Going to Genesis chapter 3. And then ahead to Matthew chapter 4. And then back to this text. And we're going to be looking at how Satan mostly tempts us. And we're going to be looking at about what we're to do about that. And we keep in mind our Wednesday night services. Um, that has been a bit of the impetus for this study. Hear now the word of the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty, through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. I'd like to read verse 5 again that we're focusing on. But I want to mention, and uh, we're pretty familiar with this verse. But I think what we're more familiar with in the idea of spiritual warfare is Ephesians chapter 6. We're not going to go there today. But I remind you, we're fighting Satan principle principalities of the air and of this world and we're told to remember to put on the whole armor of God and to do that requires what thinking I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, your clothes just don't put themselves on for you I'm pretty sure you don't just kind of emotionally feel your clothes on you have to think you have to do it you have to decide what to put on what to wear right uh, I chose this blue jacket today I chose this tie I think the renters gave it to me, by the way. I like it a lot. Uh, you know, I chose this tie clip my wife gave me. I liked it a lot. I chose brown shoes and a brown belt instead of black. I made choices, and I chose to put them on. I chose to sit down and put my socks on. I chose to get my shoe horn and put my shoes on, right? All that happens by thinking. Put on the armor of God. But I think this is even more helpful because it really gets the idea. Ultimately, how do you fight Satan? How you think. You won't put the armor on if you're not thinking about it, and you don't choose to think to do it. How you think. And what you choose not to think about. And how you choose not to let Satan influence your thinking. That's really the main idea of how we would do Ephesians 6. But keep in mind, Ephesians 6 would be a nice parallel about spiritual warfare and how to fight Satan. Here, I think we get to the heart of the matter. Let me read verse 5 again. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And the, the part of the verse, although it all relates, verses 4 to 6, even the first part of verse 5, but in terms of what we're going to have for the sermon point, what we want to drive home is this idea of the second part of verse 5, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of of Christ, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 
Well, recently I read a movie review through the Aquila Report. If you're not familiar with the Aquila Report, I encourage you to look that website up and sign up for it. Um, there's like an e-news they send out weekly of the top 10 articles that they run. A lot of times things you'll see on our Facebook page I recommend or elsewhere are uh, brought to my attention by the Aquila Report. Sometimes they they use uh, articles from the Alliance. Once in Blue Moon, I think I've had one that, that made it there. Uh, but um, it's very useful. I encourage you to, to have that as a resource. And recently, they brought to my attention a movie review by a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor, whose name is Mark Powell. And he was giving a review of the film called Nefarious. I don't know if you've heard about that. Uh, I did decide to watch it. And uh, I wanted to watch it just like a book I'm starting to read that I wanted to have as other reference points for our Wednesday studies. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil because so much of it is about not letting Satan tempt us into sinning. Deliver us from the evil one, as Lord willing, we start studying the next part with Thomas Watson Wednesday nights. So this movie, Nefarious, is about a psychiatrist who's been asked to come to prison and meet with a man who's on death row, who will be executed that very night, unless the psychiatrist decides he's not capable mentally to understand what he's done or is doing and would be allowed not to be executed. He's killed many people, though. He's guilty of many murders. And when he gets there... And he meets with this man, his name is Edward, but he doesn't call himself Edward. And when he comes into the room, this cell where he's chained to the metal heavy desks, if any of you have visited prisoners in prison, these things are heavy and they're not comfortable and they're usually, you can't get your hands under the table because the table's so low. I mean, it's really controlling, but he's chained to this. The psychiatrist comes in, James is his name, to talk with him, to assess. He holds his life in his hands, so to speak. So he thinks, as this man will tell him. Uh, and he's to assess the situation. The man's down like this, looks like he's asleep, and he raises his head, and he looks just horrible in his eyes. He, he, looks, he looks as if what the movie shares with us, he's demon-possessed. And so he says, my name is Nefarious. I'm a demon who has possessed Edward, and I've led him to kill many people, including influencing the previous psychologist you see at the beginning of the movie, who committed suicide by the influence of this demon who he was working with according to what the demon told him to do. Now, Edward, the prisoner, again, who the demon is speaking, mostly calls himself nefarious. Edward comes out once in a while and he's completely different. The demon is possessive, he's, he's in control, he's very intelligent, he's very direct, he's very strong, he's very truthful in general about what's happening, uh, but he's in complete control. Once in a while he'll let Edward, the, the person that he's possessed, speak, and he is broken and crying, and he can't keep, he can barely communicate, and he's so, he's, he's just absolutely under total control. And he's only allowed to come out once in a while to talk. Because Nefarious, the demon, is having the main conversation, the whole movie. And almost the whole movie is in this cell room. That's almost the whole movie. 
Now, Powell, the Presbyterian minister, shares a gripping scene from the movie. He says, When faced with the decision of whether to stop his girlfriend from going through with an abortion within minutes, later you see him run out, he tries to call her to get her, it stops too late. The demon even says, Can you feel it? It's happening, it's happening, and the demons rejoice, James! He knows it's happening, and he tells him, you're going to kill three people today, and that was the first one. At first, James thinks, what are you talking about? But when faced with the decision of whether to stop his girlfriend from going through with an abortion, the demon-possessed Edwards, or nefarious, really speaking, says to James, you could make the rest of your life about sacrificial love, and you could play live-in therapist for the rest of your life if you call her, tell her to stop, and have the baby, have the child. James says, I'm not ready yet. He, gets, he, he becomes less confident as the psychologist now. And then James replies after Nefarious is pushing him on what he's actually, actually doing. He says, this is my life. I can live it however I want. He also gives a lot of explain away issues of, well, it's her body and she can do what she wants when he's the one asking for it. And Nefarious points out to him, you're lying to her about why you want this to happen and you're actually planning to leave her. And it's all true. But his answer is, this is my life and I can live it however I want. And then Edward, or really Nefarious the demon, jubilantly responds, yes, James, I couldn't have said it better myself. You're speaking exactly as my master Satan would have you. You're thinking exactly as my master Satan would have you. Essentially is what he's saying. He rejoices in saying, this is my life and I can live it however I want. Yes, James, that's the way I want you to think. And that's how we killed your son. The movie's rated R. But as with the reviewer, I don't think there's anything justifying that rating, and I recommend the movie. It's almost an entire conversation between the two men across the table in a cell. And there are no swear words. It's frighteningly accurate, but I don't think there's anything that justifies an R rating. And it's frightening revealing of how Satan and his demons seek to take possession of our souls. And if not our souls, as Christians, at least pay, take possession of our lives by starting with how we think. With lots of little yeses. James asks Nefarious, speaking through Edward, how does one become possessed? He doesn't even believe it because he doesn't believe God. He doesn't believe he's an atheist. But uh, Nefarious says it doesn't just happen. It starts with a lot of little yeses. To get to the point where you get them to invite you in. That's how a person becomes demon possessed outside of Christ. I suggested and I allowed my children to watch this film because I thought, wow, this is really, really related to our Wednesday night studies. And uh, the eldest boys did watch it recently, and Abraham said to me, it's everything we have been learning about on Wednesday nights. It is like exactly what we're learning about Satan. 
Remember, the, the sixth petition is what we're studying. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And as we'll see as we start the second part of that petition this Wednesday, Lord willing, that's often developed and understood as, or explained as, the evil one, Satan. And remember, so much of our study, though we know sinful influence comes within our sinful, corrupted hearts, most of it is Satan speaking, influencing, trying to affect our thinking. Satan will tempt us, but here's what I think is profound to recognize today. He tempts us mostly with our thinking and our reason and our rationalizing. Not our emotions, not our feelings, not our body's sense of needs. Oh, that'll be a context that makes us weaker to be more tempted to think. But he tempts us with thinking. Satan will tempt us to rationalize sin and make the illogical seem reasonable. Sin as completely appropriate. I know we're not supposed to do that, but in this case, this is why it's okay. We do it all the time, don't we? Especially with how we treat others when we're mad at them for what they did to us or what we think they did to us. We change our whole behavior, attitude, thinking, and how we work and do things because of how we think instead of what Jesus says to think about them and to think about how we're to live with them and work with them. We rationalize it. We excuse ourselves thinking it's completely reasonable. It isn't emotional. We, we talk ourselves, no, I, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. We often justify our sins with, quote, I've spent a lot of time thinking and praying about this. How many times has Session got a letter like that? And we don't believe they actually have, because if they did, they would have spoken with us, and they would not have made the conclusion they did, because it's completely unscriptural. But it's always, I've spent a lot of time thinking and praying about this. You may have spent a lot of time gossiping, and murmuring, and thinking maybe, but not influenced by God and his word. Because you, when we had any conversations with you, you reflected half-truths about those scriptures, or didn't even want to discuss them. But they've convinced themselves and are very cool about it. Satan will influence your thinking, your rationalizing, and he will be your cheerleader to think anti-Christian. Yes, James, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's the way to be thinking about it. We need to capture and conquer our thinking away from the prince of darkness by and for our king of kings. For pride cometh before the fall. And that starts with how we think against God by the influence of Satan. And that's how it all started in the garden. Turn with me. Keep this marked, please. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to really benefit by recognizing how does Satan work to tempt us. And it is mostly to convince us that we're completely reasonable with what we're about to choose to do. Genesis 3 verses 1 to 19. You know, chapters 1 and 2 are about God's glorious creation with mankind as the glorious most wonderful part in his own image and uh, woman being taken out of man as a help me both in the image of God in God's presence but now they're going to be kicked out of God's presence why? because Satan comes along wanting to make them think and rationalize sin 
as if it's reasonable. Notice he's not really trying to get them to just emote it. because He's trying to get them to think it. Chapter 3 of Genesis, verses 1 to 19. I'll review a couple verses with you, but let me read it all. Now, the serpent... We know from Revelation and other places that that is Satan, the devil, the liar, the deceiver, the dragon, the fallen archangel of God. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Oh, ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil." And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Notice Satan's tactics along the way. Now remember, in this case, they were not sinners. They had the ability not to sin. They had the ability to control their thoughts. There wasn't unsanctified emotions. He coolly, calmly gets them to think wrongly and think their thinking rightly. Notice particularly about God and what God has said. Look at verse 1. 
The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? First of all, questioning God's word alone. Let's think about this. Are we understanding this correctly? Surely it can't say what it says. How many times is that the issue about things that are so obviously elementary in the Bible? It really can't mean that. Why? Because I don't want it to mean that. So it must mean something else. Let's figure out how we can explain away the clear, basic meaning and make it mean something different, whether it's doctrine or practice. Satan says that. But notice he also does this by a little bit of trickery, a little bit of confusion. Has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, he knows the answer. The answer is no. God didn't say you can't eat of every tree. But he's already starting to put that doubt Maybe resentment, confusion. Of course, Satan resents that he's not God, and he resents that God's going to put man over him. Now, the woman is confused, and she doesn't get it quite right. Well, uh, the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, verse 3, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Well, we don't have any record that God said don't touch it. Might be wise not to touch it. Don't tempt yourself. Don't eat it. That was the command. You start to confuse. What has God actually said? Let's get confused. Let's think we think it differently. Let's remember it wrong. Let's think about this and add and change what actually happened. Because we want to get somewhere with that. We want to explain away things. That can't be what it means because I don't like it. And I don't like the restriction it puts on me or the requirements it puts on me. So let's, let's think about this. She's confused. Now look at verses 4 and 5. Look again at what he does. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Oh... No, you're not going to surely die. No, 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 no. You're going to be just like God. How can it be bad for you to be just like God? Won't God be pleased that you'll be just like him? Of course, he's lying. They will know good and evil, but of course, it's a half truth. They won't know it like God knows it. They'll know it by the experience of sin. They'll know what evil is now because of sin and the effects of it in them. God objectively knows what it is. They will know about it experientially. And they won't have rule over it. It'll have rule over them. But notice he rationalizes the sin and he makes it make sense. That is what he does. That's what we let him do. I want you to see that that's the main way he goes after us to make us sin. That's the main way he tempts us to get you and I to explain it away, to rationalize it, to change what the word actually says in little small things that ends up being a big different direction. He wants to make it make sense, but he lies. And then verses 6 to 19 is the result. They did die. They're kicked out of God's presence, which is life. And then later, they die. And everyone dies after them. And as you go through Genesis, you know they die younger and younger and younger as the effects of sin and death. Because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to remember the answer to this. Also, who will be our example? I want you to see verse 15 before we leave Genesis 3. Here is the, the gospel. 
I think we say the Proto-Evangelium, if I recall correctly. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise thy heel. That's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will save us from all of this. How's he going to save us, though? Well, we'll turn to that in a moment. But he lies. And the result is what Satan's really thinking about. The effects of your sin once you think wrongly and then act upon them. We need to protect ourselves by the renewing of our minds. The Christian's main weapon of spiritual warfare against all satanic influence, against Christ and his call on our lives to follow him, is to put our anti-Christian thoughts into prison. So we think right. So we live and live right. I give that to you as the main idea of our text of the sermon today. Would you turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 6? But we're particularly looking at verse 5. I give you the main idea of our text today. The Christian's main weapon of spiritual warfare against all satanic influence, against Christ and his call in our lives to follow him, is to put our anti-Christian thoughts into prison so we think right, so we live and live right. Fanon and I have been discussing some people in our lives whose lives just seem to keep going the wrong direction. And what we've noticed is they just are not thinking like the scriptures or the church. They're just thinking like the world. They're, they're clearly giving their thoughts over to the wrong thoughts. We have to do the opposite. Take those thoughts captive, not give them any place in our heads. Chain them up and throw them away. Because that's how Satan is going to get us. Notice the word imagination in our verse 5. Casting down imaginations. And that's actually the first word in the order in the Greek. Imaginations. That's not a wrong word, but it's, I think, helpful to see how it could be translated in the Greek. Literally, thoughts. Thinking. Casting down our thinking. Casting down the kinds of thinking and thoughts that go against Jesus, that exalt themselves against Jesus satanically. Uh, the word in the Greek for thoughts and thinking is logismos. And you might recognize that's based on the word for wisdom in Greek, logos where we get the word logic, and that is what Jesus is. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. The word for word in Greek is logos. We want to cast out wrong logic, wrong reasoning, satanic reasoning, so that we obey Christ who is logic, who is the logos. And we are to put wrongly reasoned thoughts into prison. We must take them captive so we do not become the prisoner of Satan under the guard of his demons and their demonic influences upon our thought life to make us think we are being reasonable and rational. When our arguments are twisted and demented as as cool, calm, and collected as we think we are before we're about to jump right off the cliff along with the Broadway that leads to death. And that's what we do. We rationalize. We justify. We don't listen to the right things. We don't listen to the wrong things. And we make decisions that we 
get ourselves to think are completely reasonable and rational. We pretend, oh, I'm not emotional at all. Exactly how Satan wants you to think. When we should be emotional and broken and grieve over our sins, starting with how we think. Thomas J. Nettles, in his, book, in, his, in his chapter called Knowing Satan, in a book, Our Ancient Foe, Satan's History, Activity, and Ultimate Demise. And uh, by the way, I've started reading that book again. I found it on my shelves from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, published by PNR Publishing. And I thought, well, I should read this now, <laughs> while we're on our study of the Sixth Petition on Wednesday nights. And this This chapter is what really led me to say, I think we should think about this. What he draws out, he's focusing on more and other things, but one thing he draws out, I think, so important, Satan is primarily going after how you think. That's how he did it with Eve. He writes this, Satan wormed his way into Eve's intellect. Before I continue, that brings to mind the idea of a parasite or something, gets up through the nose or the ears, like, you don't know, next thing you know, it's in there controlling your brain and your, everything in your body that works, right? Satan wormed his way into Eve's intellect without dispelling her affections. He gradually led her to assume intellectual autonomy. She allowed this intellectual autonomy to lead her into disobedience to a specific command of God. And children, if you don't know what autonomy means, it means your self, independent self, not under the guidance of God, pretending that we can be autonomous, when in fact, if that's the case, then it's actually Satan influencing us. But that idea of intellectual autonomy, I can think about this, I can think about the scriptures, I can think about anything outside of God being my authority. Intellectual autonomy. As if we can actually do that. Recognize, remembering that we're sinful because of the fall. We are inclined to think wrongly. Thomas Nettles goes on to say this. If we can learn how Satan operates and how scripture depicts him as operating... It will help us as we seek to stand in the face of temptation. We cannot go any place in this present world that is not to some extent and in some way under the influence of Satan and his angels. Luther's conviction, Martin Luther's conviction that Satan seeks to inhabit all places is something that we should take very seriously. And what we want to recognize and he helps draw out is what does Satan want to inhabit more than anything? Your minds. Your thoughts, your thinking, even as you read the scriptures, the way you think about them, the way you won't, the way you'll think about ones and won't think about the others. He wants to inhabit the way you think. See Satan's same tactic of influencing thinking, trying to, that is, not feelings, but influencing thinking by having a conversation and rationalizing sin as he goes after Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 we'll come back to 2 Corinthians 10 turn with me to Matthew chapter 4 now remember in our study Wednesday nights we've turned here a lot we see a lot about how Satan goes after us and we see a lot about how Jesus uh, doesn't give in to it now he alone is perfect 
And it's only because of his obedience not to give in to Satan that we have eternal life. But he does give us the example of how to resist Satan that he would flee us, flee from us, according to James. Matthew chapter 4, 1 to 11, and I'm going to highlight a few verses again to recognize Satan's main tactic of getting us, tempting us to sin. But let me read 4 through 11. Then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came. And ministered unto him. You need to see that last part as your encouragement as well, resisting. But let's look a little more closely at how Satan tries to tempt Jesus. Verse 3, when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Notice his name here is Tempter. You can listen to Pastor Bell's series on Satan. That's one of the things he focuses on. He is trying to tempt you to sin. He's trying to influence you to sin. He's called the tempter. Now remember, the prayer is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Which is why we need particularly mindful of Satan trying to tempt us. But what does he do here? He reasons, if you are the Son of God, well, well, I am the Son of God. Don't question that, right? If he could get Jesus to doubt himself, or feel the need to prove himself, and then put himself under the authority of Satan by doing that. Uh, command these stones to be made bread. Well, Jesus, who is the bread of life, the manna from heaven, could he have done that? Of course he could have. Well, I mean, you're the son of God. You can make bread out of stones. Why don't you do that? You're fasted 40 days. Clearly you're hungry. I mean, uh, it might even seem like he's concerned for Jesus. Well, you know, I am the son of God, he's hoping. You know, I have the power to do that. And maybe you're right, Satan. I am hungry. I'll just do that because I can't do it. I'll show that I am the son of God by doing it. Jesus doesn't think that way. He's perfect and thinks perfectly. And we'll look at how he answers. But notice, notice how Satan tempts. Now verses 5 to 6. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Look, notice again, if thou be the Son of God. Of course, on the cross, that's what they're saying too. Well, can't you take yourself off the cross? Show you're the Son of God by your power. Show! But it would be breaking God's word. Breaking the plan. 
And then he'd show himself not to be the son of God because the son of God loves his father and does everything he commands, right? But notice here, he's quoting scripture, beloved. What scripture is he quoting? The devil is quoting scripture. You know, in the movie, the demon nefarious says, I know more theology than any man of all time, all humanity. I know it all. Right, James says the demons know God is true. Shudder about it, right? I mean, when Jesus is on the scene in the flesh, the demons, the demons and possessing people are the ones shuddering the most, going crazy about it. Is this the time? Is this the time where you take the world back from Satan and our master and cast us into the lake of fire? Please just cast us into these pigs, a man called Legion, right? They know the truth. Satan knows the truth. He's lying to you about it and wants you to think you know better. He knows really better, but he wants you to think you know better than God. And notice again, he's quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Look, it says you can do this. It says if you're falling, he's going to keep your feet from hitting the ground. The angels will rescue you. Notice the angels do feed him later. But, but he's lying. Jesus says you're not supposed to tempt God. Notice he's quoting Deuteronomy, by the way, that we're going through in the morning. He's quoting Deuteronomy almost the whole time here in Matthew 4. Keep that in mind. The word of God, all the word of God, Deuteronomy tells us to have. Jesus says, by, not by bread alone I live, but every word of the mouth of God. Our life is to be the word of God. We live by the word of God. We die by the tongue of Satan. But notice Satan reasoning, rationalizing. Well, yeah, I mean, the Bible says, you know how many people, a certain person in my life, how many times that person says the Bible says, and they are not quoting scripture, but they're hoping to borrow the authority of it. And I often say, where does it say that? I don't know that it says that. Oh, well, to justify a certain behavior or thought. Satan will bring you to certain scriptures without the other part of it, or out of context, or ignoring other things, or the main idea of the text, and get you to use it as your excuse to sin. Oh, I can break the Sabbath. God wants me to take care of my family. It's true he wants you to take care of your family, but not by way of violating the Sabbath, as if that's taking care of your family as you lead them to be unscriptural and unspiritual. And you lead them away from the means of grace and rest and worship. Now look at verses 8 to 9. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Ah, that's what he wants the whole time. That's why he is a fallen angel, the leader of them all. He wants to be God. And if he can't have it in heaven, he'll have it from the God, son of God from heaven here on earth. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you everything. You think that wasn't a real temptation? Forget about the cross. I'll give it to you now. Just worship me. Serve me. I'll give you all of these things. Rule and kingdoms of the world. But Jesus is to bring all things under the foot and authority of God. Not Satan. But look. This is a real thing, you know. He doesn't talk about the consequences for us if Jesus did that. But he is the prince of the air. He is the principality of the dark things of this life. He, he's, he's bound, but he's been running the world since the fall. Notice how he just keeps trying to influence you to think wrongly. 
and even to think wrongly about the scriptures. And notice, to question whether you are a son of God, little s, a daughter of God. If you are, Notice Satan seeks to have a conversation with you, just like with Eve, just like with Jesus. But like Jesus, we must think God's thoughts after him. Reading the scriptures and reasoning them correctly. Not misinterpreting with eisegesis. You know what eisegesis is? Reading into the scripture what I want it to mean. That's what we're warned about in seminary. We're to do exegesis. Drawing out of the scripture what it says and what it means. What God means. Not reading into it what we want with Satan influencing us to interpret it the way we want it to be. We should not be misinterpreting the Bible with eisegesis often out of context to suit our own preconceived notions and try and justify ourselves in our sinful choices. While you hunger and other needs can make you weak to be influenced, and while we are emotional, Satan ultimately is looking to influence how you think. How you reason to justify how you act upon your feelings. When deep down you know it's wrong, according to your conscience and God's witness to it. Even using the Bible to do so. While he appeals to physical needs, he mainly works on the thought process. How did you get there? Keep thinking about it. You're told not to think about those things, but you, you do. You keep thinking about it. And you keep thinking about why, and you give yourself an excuse, and you, you rationalize and make it sound like it's actually a good thing. Satan mainly seeks a conversation with you to trick you into thinking the way he wants you to, instead of the way Jesus commands you to think. Often tricking you into thinking it is best for Jesus and you in some demented way, by leaving out the whole picture, the whole truth. Remember the recent Sabbath class, Sabbath class Philip Riken, in his message, Is the Reformation Relevant Today? with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology this year. He said most of our problems relate to having half the truth. Most of our sins and our problems in life is having half the truth, not all of it. We are easily tricked into lying to ourselves, speaking half-truths to ourselves and others, being convinced, quote-unquote, of sinning as rational with what we do not allow ourselves to think and think about as we keep talking with Satan about what we prefer and we block our ears to what the Holy Spirit would say to us and what Christians would say to us, what our ministers and our elders would say to us, what our Christian friends would say to us and what the Bible clearly says. Like Jesus in Matthew sixteen twenty three, you must recognize the faulty reasoning, quote unquote, of sin, sometimes by omission. How many times do we talk our out of, ourselves out of doing what is required? With often well-meaning influences, and we need to see Satan behind it and behind them and say, get thee behind me, as he said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. I mean, Peter was well-meaning and he was thinking, he thought properly. You're the son of God. You're the king of kings. You shouldn't have to go through this. 
Beloved, remember in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Philippians 4, that we studied not long ago, you are commanded to control how you think. What you think about and what you do not think about and how you think about them. So you do not worry and you are content and you have peace and unity among one another. So often Satan gets us fighting with each other because we rationalize how we want to act towards someone. And we won't really let ourselves think about what the Bible has to say about it. Overcome evil with good, for instance. Humble ourselves. Wisdom and love overlooks multitude of sins. Think not only of your own interests, but those of others. But we start to rationalize, especially if they've hurt us, or we think they have, or we're offended. And we start to justify behavior that it's not Christian. But it's anti-Christian, and that thinking is from Satan. We need to realize this. Feelings often influence us too much, but we always end up making a choice to sin. It always comes down to what you decide based on what you are thinking. Oh, you'll excuse yourself, it was feeling and emotion. Yeah, but you still thought and chose to do it based on what you thought. It ultimately is a choice you make as a rational creature, pretending it's rational and reasonable. By the way, to disobey God is never actually rational, logical, or reasonable. He is the God of gods. He's the maker of the universe. He controls it all. He influences, or rather, Satan influences so many people to say there is no God. But Psalm 19 tells us there is. Romans 2 tells us we know there is a God. But we, we rationalize till we get to where we don't believe it. We convince ourselves that we know the truth, even though we're lying to ourselves. We think we can explain the beginning and origin of the universe based on looking at rocks. We weren't there, God says to Job. We weren't there, but the Bible tells us who was and that he did it. But we rationalize, think we're smarter. We think we're brilliant and we become fools. We think it into being by thinking it into our behavior. We think it will be okay. We think our thinking about sin is not sin itself. But it is sins. What do we pray? Forgive us for our sins against you in thought, word, and deed. And it starts with the thoughts. We rationalize like Satan. We listen to Satan and we tempt him to tempt us. Especially to melancholy. That's what Thomas Watson said in our studies on Wednesday nights. Melancholy tempts Satan to tempt us. We rationalize how we feel. We rationalize what the real need is when it's not. We need to realize Satan mainly gets us to sin as we rationalize with him wrongly. We think we are completely rational when in fact we are being thinking sinfully. And so we sin. And so we suffer. Thomas J. Nettles, in his book, again, Our Ancient Foe, I've quoted earlier, he writes this, When we begin to allow our thinking to lead us away from absolute obedience to the word of God, we are misusing our reason and misplacing our affections. When our rationality begins to be operated independently of divine revelation, When it opposes the clearly revealed propositions of scripture, 
we have fallen into the error of the first opponent of God's infinite wisdom. Satan. This is the way Satan operates, the method by which he reasoned himself out of heaven. Because of a sliver of intellectual autonomy. Beloved, you need to recognize the psychology of the sin. The body will influence, but the greatest influence is Satan on your soul or on your mind's thinking. How you make excuses, how you rationalize, how you reason it away, how you minimize, how you play the blame game excuse, right? I mean, isn't that what we try to teach our young ones all the time? Just because they did this doesn't mean what you did in response was right. (laughs) But of course, that's what you and I do all the time, isn't it? Well, you got to understand. Adam, Eve led me to do this. Well, you're supposed to be leading her. And as most argue, he's probably there. Eve, Satan made me do this. Satan didn't make you do anything, woman. Why are you having a conversation with him in the first place? Adam, why are you letting her? And if you're there, why don't you open your mouth and protect her? Well, let me think about it. Stop thinking about it that way. Think about it God's way. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Get thee behind me, Satan. Stop playing the blame game to excuse your sins. Catch yourself. Control yourself. Stop your stinking thinking. Stop thinking it is reasonable to sin. Satan is playing mind games with you to capture you, to change you. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says this, For as he thinketh in his heart, So is he. Satan wants to influence you to think in your heart demonically. And watch out for the danger of what your thinking might become. Romans chapter 1, 21 to 22. But they became vain in their imaginations. I didn't look at the Greek, but I bet that's the same as in our text today. In their thinking, in their thoughts, they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And you don't even know because Satan has you thinking you're so wise. And you only spend time with people who help you think you're so wise. Because you think the same things they want to think. And they want you to think that way. Beloved, pray the sixth petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Especially the second part, deliver me from evil. Deliver me from the evil one. And don't think you can do it alone. That's the other big problem. You can't do it. You can only do it in Jesus. You can only do it with the Holy Spirit enabling you. By grace, not by works. Don't be thinking, I got this. But think, help me Jesus, you alone have this. Mark Powell shares another frightening scene in the movie Nefarious. Finally, after an extended list of society's achievements from James, the psychologist, when he's trying to say, oh, the world's getting better and better, you're trying to act like it's getting worse and worse, he gives a pretty good argument in return, nefarious to say, 
well, the world's actually getting way worse. You think it's better? It's getting way worse. But the psychologist, James, he wants to justify how much things are getting better. Gender inequality, people can love who they want. Diversity is no longer a dream. Hate speech is no longer tolerated. And politically, we are reclaiming the moral high ground. That is, we, the world, we without God. And Nefarious says in response, I think I love you, James. Because you're thinking the same thing. And you're thinking what I want you to think. Satan and his demons will pretend to love you, but they are actually making you their prisoner. And if possible, if you don't know Christ, waiting within you, within minutes along the final execution on an eternal death row. By making you think you are thinking for yourself and to think only about yourself. If you give your thoughts to Satan and let him guide your thinking, you become his captive. You become captive to him. Your lives become in captivity to him. Thus Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 to 26, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. Who are taken captive by him at his will. Instead, beloved, take every thought captive in obedience to Jesus Christ. That is your main way of spiritual warfare. Take every thought captive in obedience to Jesus Christ and do not let Satan influence your thinking but take those thoughts captive and cast them out as you quote the scriptures like Jesus and you properly interpret and apply them For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience, When your obedience is fulfilled. Beloved. Satan is everywhere. And he wants to inhabit your minds. With his words. And he wants to control you. With his chains of lies. That he will cause you to think are quite reasonable. Take every thought captive. In obedience to Jesus Christ. That is the message for you today. Take every thought captive in obedience to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. O Lord God, let us put our bodies into subjection unto you because you gave your body and subjected it to the cross and to death. And Let us take every thought captive in obedience to you because you are obedient to your heavenly father. Never, never let Satan cause you to think wrongly, sinfully. 
to reason wickedly. You quoted the scriptures and applied them rightly. And you took on the agony of eternal mind, mental suffering on the cross as well that would be ours. So let us in return out of love and thanksgiving take every one of our thoughts captive. Recognize Satan constantly trying to get us. And when we find ourselves reasoning away your scriptures and not wanting them to be brought to mind and answering them with yeah buts, help us to recognize this is Satan at work whispering into our ears with his forked tongue. Cleanse us, O Lord, with your word. Thy word is truth. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. and Let them have no dominion over us. Then shall we be upright and innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. And we close praying as you, Lord Jesus, taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.